Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest here on West Coast Live has uh, started out, uh, he's had a number of jobs in his life, including cleaning people's apartments, as a radio commentator, as an essayist. He's also worked as a panhandler, as a uh, friend to others, as somebody who takes stories from throughout his family and converts them into that rare metal known as comedy. His books include Barrel Fever, Naked Holidays on Ice, Me Talk Pretty One Day. It's a pleasure to have him back here on West Coast Live. His new book is called Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim. Please welcome David Sedaris. Hi, thanks. Uh, I just realized David Sedaris from Paris kind of has a nice little rhyme, rhyme to it. That's why I moved to London. <laughs> you know, one of, uh, one of your many of, of these lovely stories in this, in this book talks about the idea of having, uh, in my other house, the idea of having more than one place. And you are now in a position in your life where you have more than one abode. Well, I was in, and there's a story in the book that I was at the dry cleaners with my mother, and there was this woman in front of us, God, this was years ago, and she was talking to the Korean guy who ran the, the uh, dry cleaner, and she said, well, she'd like to stay in Raleigh longer. She said, but my home, well, <laughs> one of my homes is on the garden tour, so I've got to get back. And here she was telling this guy who didn't understand a word she was saying that she, <laughs> that she had two homes. And I always, always thought about that and laughed about it. And now I got busted a couple of weeks ago. I had, it was an interview, and the guy said, do you have four homes? And I said, well, one of them is a rental. But <laughs> yeah, I'm four positions away from a homeless person. But... <laughs> <clears throat> but I just like to move. Yeah. Well, you're a homeful person now. I'm a homebody, and I've got, uh, yeah, three bodies to, I mean, three homes to put my body in, but... You don't have a body in each home to go back to, then? And we just kind of go back and forth, yeah. You know? yeah. We just go, and I'm lucky. I mean, sure, I'm lucky. I, uh, Do you ever have feelings of apprehension about your luck that it will change? Oh, I fully expect it to, but that's why I got those homes, so then I can, I can sell them later on. I'm not a very, I mean, I never had any money. I never had any money, and I, you know, and then I just got lucky, and, and so I, I guess I just, you know, I just thought, well, if, then I'll just buy a house, I mean, an apartment, and they're small apartments, they really are, they're very small, they're, uh, but then if you, can, if you can do that, then you can just put a down payment on an apartment, right? And then you can live there, and four or five years you can sell it, and maybe you get enough to pay for all your groceries and all your shoes or, and all the things that you spent, breadcrumbs, everything you spent money on while you were in that apartment, and then so you just have a free life for a few years. You, uh, there's a scene in your book where you talk about your parents becoming real estate moguls, building their empire, inspired by a late-night cable TV show. Well, I remember seeing these cable, these infomercials. It was when they very first started coming on, and there would be this guy on there that, you know, on paper he was worth millions of dollars, but if you shook him down, you'd get like 20 bucks from him. And he was, that's, and I never understood it, that you buy a house and then you refinance it, and then you buy a putt-putt course, and then you refinance that. 
and you own 17 homes. And I never understood it. You know, you've seen those boring shows and they have graphs and there's just some guy and you don't believe a word he says and he's just... You, you have a higher tolerance for those than I do. I love, I mean, yeah, just the, the goofier the TV, the more inclined I am to sit in front of it. There's a show I like now called, um, what is it, Holiday Airport. And it's just, they go to a different busy airport where people go on vacation and it's just people screaming at the people behind the counter. <laughs> and it's so completely entertaining and it la it's a ha half hour a week. There was a very cheery touch. I'm, you travel around a lot and you probably have all these kinds of stories. There was a very cheery touch at Dulles Airport. The, you know, it's a long, huge, you know, uh, I don't know, Saarinen design or something, but the security line stretched all the way from one end of the airport facade all the way down, back up the other end and back around, then it zigzagged in finally uh, in through all the, all the little ropes and straps. And the end of the security line where everyone had to then join the queue was marked by a little yellow balloon, helium balloon with a happy face on it. <laughs> That was the end of the line? That was the end of the line. That was where you had to join if you were coming in to get uh, x-rayed. I would have turned that upside down, I think. Yeah, I know. That, uh... <laughs> to make it truly a, a... So there's this new movie out about a guy who spends a, a year in the airport. Have you seen this? And it's based on a, a true story of a guy who's been living in at De Gaulle for years. Who's, and they, he got, they paid him for the rights for the movie, but he's still, to the best of my knowledge, he's still living in the airport. It's a... Um, even though he's got now some money that he could live elsewhere if he wanted to. Yeah, I think he's a little crazy. I think that there was some reason he had to be in the airport, but on top of that, he's a little crazy. The, uh, uh, to go back to this, uh, the real estate of your, your father bought some apartment houses and you helped work around them and deal with the tenants. And you yourself have been a tenant. What, what did you learn about behaving, uh, tenant behavior as a result? How, how you would be a good tenant? Well, my dad's a landlord. He's a slumlord, basically. He was. <laughs> and he, now he has his uh, properties near the university that he rents out, and he loves to enter without knocking. And he'll say, <laughs> I walked on and in on this guy having sex with his girlfriend. He said, Dad, did you go in there without a key, without knocking? Uh, and that's what he does. It's like... Uh, that's what he does. He, uh, <laughs> but I worked, uh, he had this, they had this rental property years ago, and I worked uh, for the rental property, and it did little jobs for them here and there, and there's a story about, in the book about these tenants who, my parents had just started being landlords, and they didn't recognize the kind of person, which is hard to often recognize, who wants something for free or who is going to sue you, who goes in, gets the apartment knowing they're going to take you to court. And the bathroom ceiling caved in on this guy's wife, and they took my parents to court. And it was completely phony. You know, they're one of those situations where someone wears a neck brace, and I can't believe that anybody uh, fell for it. But, I mean, I suppose most people... Like, I was at a hotel the other day, and this guy was screaming at the woman behind the counter, and I thought, he wants a free minibar. And they gave him the free minibar, and he kept it up, and I thought, oh, he's not leaving till he gets a free room. But the world is full of people like that. But I think they're often hard to, to recognize. You can be surprised some, sometimes. Your mother was worried about you. She thought that you, would be, you were too gullible. Well, I still am. I'm a very trusting person. I'm, I'm very wrong about people most of the time. I, <laughs> I, I really am. I'm not wise that way at all. Yeah, how did you meet Hugh? 
Uh, when I first moved to New York, I, I had a friend from North Carolina, and she was an apartment painter, and I was going to help her do a job, and she knew a guy who had a ladder. So we went to Hugh's house. We went to his apartment, and he was, it was Saturday night, and he was listening to country music, and he had a pie in the oven. And, and I just I liked his stuff, and I liked how he... I don't know. I just thought the only thing missing here is me. So... <laughs> And I just, I just started scheming to make him fall in love with me. And I left notes in his, in his refrigerator, in his freezer, and in all of his shoes, like, you will fall in love with David. And I just, I just wore him down. I cannot believe that that worked. Yeah. Cannot believe that it worked. And he had no idea when you walked into that apartment. No, no, he didn't have any idea. I mean, it was just my idea. Yeah. It was my idea to, uh, it wasn't mutual at all, but... We were both single, so I wasn't taking him away from anybody, or he wasn't taking me away from anybody. And it, so it's been, what, 13 years now? And I keep waiting for him to wake up. <laughs> the, uh, your mother plays an important role in this collection of, of stories, uh, both in terms of, uh, sort of looking after you, but also, uh, and, and the, the, the stories in this book have a level of poignancy that is different from some of your other writings that uh, your mother, for instance, is, is in tears because your father is kicking you out of the house because you're gay, and she has, and, but nobody has said that that's the reason that they're kicking you out. And I just figured he was kicking me out because I was a drug addict. And, <laughs> and that was a story that I wrote for Ira's show, and Ira loves any kind of confusion in a story, but it's hard to explain confusion. You know, sometimes it's hard to untie that knot. It just gives you a headache to even try. It's like technical writing in a way. So... <laughs> And I'd, yeah, I, I didn't know why he was throwing me out of the house, but my dad's the kind of guy who can kick you out of the house. I mean, he can throw your stuff out of the house. The next day, it's forgotten about. He, he, he doesn't hold a grudge at all, so I was back the next day. How, how do, <laughs> that didn't show up in the story for some reason. Uh, no, I didn't. Add, I, did, I just wanted to keep it short. Yeah. So I, uh, <laughs> you... Uh, You've clearly learned how uh, to shape stories in your books, and you thank your editors. And I just wonder how that writer-editor relationship goes. I mean, do you, how do they guide you or help you? Do they just... Well, I go on these lecture tours twice a year. So in October, I'll go to 30 cities, and then I'll go to 30 cities in April. And I bring a bunch of new stories with me, and I read them and rewrite them and read them and rewrite them. And just try to learn as much as I can before I give it to an editor, and then an editor will you know, will help me more, but I don't, I don't want to give an editor a, let's say, the fifth draft, because then by the 12th, they're just going to be exhausted. So I'd rather give them the 15th and then work with them until the 18th draft. <laughs> the, um, a lot of your material comes from your family, and you write stories where members of your family complain about you using their lives for material, and you're always apologizing. Uh, I like that tack where you do something and then you apologize for it <laughs> later. But they, well, my brother loves, he loves to be written about and he sells barbecue sauce and t-shirts. This is Paul. Yeah, and he makes money off of it. And my, he, he, what he did, it was odd. He went to a company and he said, if I buy, can I buy your barbecue sauce and put my own label on it? And they said, sure. So it's as simple as that. So he just... And he's too lazy to soak off the old one, so he just puts his label over the original label. And he has, 
you know, he sells it over the computer and he sells t-shirts and I went to a bookstore in Memphis and they had my brothers and they're the ugliest t-shirts you ever saw in your life right next to my book so it looked like I was merchandising but I can't accuse him of exploiting me you know does your, does your sister Amy also make use of family stories and how do you divvy up the family stories that you're going to use Amy's more of an observational person. Amy doesn't really tell stories. She just comments on the world around her. Um, but you, it's very rare to hear Amy repeat anything. She says something, and then once it's out of her mouth, she completely forgets it. So <laughs> you need somebody there to write it all down. But she doesn't, she doesn't hold on to things. She just moves through the world and, and comments on it. Why, why did you move from Paris to London? They speak English there, and that was pretty, to watch Coronation Street, basically. Yeah. It's a soap opera, and it's re, it's half-hour soap opera, comes on at 7 o'clock, and it's so good. And it's, on American soap operas, it's always two filthy rich families trying to compete to, you know, to control the town. And it isn't even that people are regular looking on English soap operas. They're ugly. They're poor. <laughs> They're poor and they're ugly and they're really good actors and the writing is so much better than you find on an American soap opera. And you couldn't get that on cable in Paris? I don't really believe in... Well, I don't... I, don't, I didn't want cable. Like, <laughs> cable is... I'm not a huge TV watcher and I can usually get interested in... And I don't watch it that much, so normally I can just get interested in whatever I see. That keeps me busy enough. But to have, like, 58 channels, no, I, I, I didn't want that. It was, and then I can read the paper there without um, a dictionary, and I can <laughs> listen to the radio without getting a headache. And well, one of the things I remember the last time you were on, you liked about being in a French, in France, for instance, you, if you had to go to the hospital, you could have both simultaneously a Demerol drip and smoke in the emergency room. <laughs> yeah, they let you smoke. I, the last time I went to a French hospital, they let me smoke, and that's heaven. That's absolute. What I've been doing on this book tour is I initiate priority signing for smokers. <laughs> so smokers, they just have to have their pack because I don't want social smokers. And a real smoker would never say I left my cigarettes in the car. So, and I say, and I say to these people, I say, you know, someone is going to ask you for that pack of cigarettes so they can get their book signed early. But I want you to look at that person and I want you to think, would that person allow me to smoke in, in their home? And the answer is always no. So for, forget them. This is about, and I've been trying to recruit smokers on this trip too because I want to build an army, a militant army. And I met a guy the other day who, and this is a beautiful story. He started smoking when he was 50. You see, a lot of people think you have to start when you're a teenager, but it's never too late to start. It's never too late to start. And I was, I think I was in Austin, Texas, and I, I said, okay, priority for smokers. And people were furious. You, you can't do that. And, but I can. You know, I can, I can do that. And then somebody said, well, can I get priority if I have emphysema or if I have uh, throat cancer? It's like, as long as you still smoke, you know, you can. Do, do you miss cigarette advertising on the television? Well, it, it just, I, would, I would like to know what they would be doing with it now. Because the last time, that, it's been so long since I had cigarette advertisements on television. And it's one of those things we never got to see it advance. 
Like we got to see soft drink commercials advance. You know, with we went from the singers on a mountaintop wanting to teach the world to sing to, I don't know, to uh, what's her name? Um, you know, pop stars, uh, Britney Spears, uh, dancing around in a little costume. But we never got to see cigarette advertisements move forward. And and I would I would like to. I mean, from from the the, the cowboys on horseback in the countryside or right. from the cowboys to horseback we never saw what it would be because then was and even print cigarette ads often you don't see people smoking you see them getting ready to smoke or they're throwing their head back in laughter and they're you know they're thinking about how good that cigarette's going to taste but you don't you don't see them like, like that desperation in their uh, in their look standing outside of an airport or standing out Outside of their office, and getting kind of twitchy and right, getting uh, ugly looks. You yeah. don't see, you don't see that. There was a, there was a lovely description of, of your uh, brother Paul's wife, kind of looking like a, a Madonna uh, or a, or a pre-Raphaelite woman, uh, with the exception of uh, the uh, the tattoos and the nicotine patch. Yeah, she gave up smoking when she was during her pregnancy. But I said to her, why? Because my mother smoked through all of our pregnancies. And look at us. I mean, we're, it didn't. But I love that about in Paris, you'll see, you'll see a newborn toddler, you'll see a woman pushing a baby, you know, when she's got a cigarette in her hand and she's pushing the baby in the carriage or she's holding it. And in the United States, you would have somebody coming up and giving you lip about that. But really, I mean, our parents did that with us. I mean, it's, it's fine. It's absolutely <laughs> fine. And, and in London, do you find uh, the air the same? Um, you can't smoke, smoke quite as much in London as you can in France, but it's still, it's still pretty good for it. It's not... Um, and then I just went to Asia, scoping it out, you know, for when they make it illegal in Europe. I'm just going to be moving further. <laughs> um, and You're then, looking for the new smoking zones in the world. Yeah, and I think it'll be, I don't know, there's some little islands off the coast of Africa, and I think those are the places I'll probably wind up at, at some point. Where do you, uh, what's, uh, what's sort of the good places for material for you nowadays? You know, when you, when you work up a story, when you work up a story and you're on the road, you've got your notebook, you're reading from it uh, to an audience, uh, you're working out the drafts, the, the laugh lines, uh, you're looking further afield, how's your life changed as far as gathering material? I mean, it hasn't really. I mean, it's just things all around. You just open the newspaper, you'll find something. I, I was in Dublin a few weeks ago at this fancy department store, and they had a gram of tea that cost 20 euros for a gram of tea. And there was a sign on it that said, specially, or rare Chinese tea specially picked by hand-trained monkeys. <laughs> you know? And I just pictured the Chinese saying, you know, them monkeys coming over here and stealing our jobs. And it was... <laughs> And you find things everywhere, yeah. you know, wherever you go, there's a little something waiting for you. And so when you travel 30 cities, 60 cities uh, in, in a year, you, the people uh, must come to you with stories or ideas, or you must see them all around you then? Um, yeah, and then you get a lot of good names, and, uh, but generally, gee, I mean, the stories that people tell you are, the other day, I'm, I'm I'm signing books, and usually if I'm in line to have my book signed, I'm a nervous wreck, and I'm thinking, oh, everything I say, he's heard a thousand times what I'm going to say. So I figure it's my job to disarm people, so I just ask questions. 
And I said to this woman last week, I said, uh, what's your name? And she said, Beth. And I said, when was the last time you touched a monkey? And she said, today. And she worked for a company that trains monkeys to act as slaves to paralyzed people. Isn't that great? I'm, slaves. As slaves. And I saw an article that there was a, a slave monkey like putting a CD or turning over a CD and like looking at its master like, like yes, master, and putting a CD. And she trains. And I just thought, boy, if I hadn't asked, I never would have known. And she invited me. She invited me to the slave camp, basically, and I'm going to go next. I'm going to be back in Boston in the fall, and they, 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 they need donations. And I thought, that is such a good cause, because I've been looking for a cause. And, but, but, but not for a slave monkey. That, I think that's going to be my cause, because I, I mean, that would be, and I could just do fundraisers for them, and she said, just to enslave monkeys. Um, I just think that's such a good, and I can be associated with it. You know, like certain people are associated with diabetes, or I, I can. Which, which, which weekend of the year would you do your marathon on TV for slave monkeys? The David Sedaris Slave Monkey Marathon. Well, I figure, okay, they're picking tea in China, right? right? So uh, I think they'd be happier just turning over, a seat, turning over a record or answering the door. I mean, I'd rather do that than pick tea in the hot sun for Irish people. I mean, and, and you'd, uh, you'd look after, you'd treat them well. Uh, yeah. Give them time off? No, I would love to, but I, I would love to. I think it's a great, a great thing. And I talked to a paralyzed person about it. He said, sure, I'd love to have a monkey. But I'm sure that there are people who are just incensed. You can't enslave monkeys. I wrote a story. Well, there are guide dogs that go around in uh, Yeah, you know, there are people who are against guide dogs, too. And I wrote a story in a book, in the book about drowning a mouse. And I got a letter from someone who said, I read that story and then I gave all your books to Goodwill. And, and he was from the Mouse and Rat Protection League. And he gave me all this information and said, you know, if you stop mistreating mice, you'll have a whole new audience. But this mouse, the mouse that I wrote about, it was caught in a trap that I didn't set, and every bone was broken. There was no way it was going to live, and I thought, well, I'll put it in a bucket and drown it, right? And you can read on stage, you could read a story about kicking a pregnant woman in the stomach, and everyone's fine with that. But if you do anything to an animal, oh, oh, that poor mouse, that's just amazing to me. Would you, uh, your, your sister keeps some parrots, uh, and she kisses a parrot at one point. And you're terrified the idea that her, your tongue, if you did the same, would get nipped off. Oh, that parrot would just rip the tongue right out of my mouth. But parrots usually are only friendly to, they only have one friend. Like my sister can stick her tongue out, and the parrot will just grip her, the tip of her tongue and give her a little... I don't know if you heard Claire talking about putting starfish on her face. I absolutely loved, and I could just see it so clearly when she was talking about it. It really, she did a great job uh, providing a mental picture there. Your, uh, your stories are filled with mental images that come back like, like some kind of uh, aleatory slideshow to kind of shock you at times and, and retain these images of, of shame and of fear and of uh, mortification. Uh, it's like uh, your favorite matinee show that seems to come around. Oh, I think Ira taught me a lot about that, about 
writing for the radio and about how to put an image in someone's mind and how you don't want to put too many in there. Because when you're listening to something, on, it's different in a book, but when you're listening on the radio, sometimes people give you too many and your head can't hold that many pictures and so you have to sort of time it, time it out that way. Um, but he, yeah, he taught me a lot in that regard. He's a, I was a good editor. You're, um, you wanted to leave at 11.30 today, and it's just about that time. Is, have you, are you stealing, still dealing with time and some of these kind of very highly routinized and planned manners? Well, when you're on a book tour, it's, people often say, you're having a good time here, and you know, I hope you have a good time here in Austin, and you just look at them and you think, what are you thinking? Like all I'm, because you just go from one place to the next, to the next, to the next, and like yesterday my plane was three and a half hours late, so that meant four interviews had to be rescheduled, and, but I like it. I feel like I never, I never had a real job, so I just act like I'm a dad on a business trip. <laughs> I mean, I'm not gonna get anything for Father's Day, you know, because I, I don't really have a child, but I, I, there's something about, like, feeling like a guy on a business trip isn't enough. I like to just pretend like I'm a dad on a business trip, and... Well, here, these are your children. And I just uh, go from place to place, and I, I've never been one to grumble about a book tour. I don't see the downside, really. Well, not so much grumbling, but, you know, you've had this obsessive-compulsive issue at times in your life. You know, I, I'm going to go to that in and out house of pancakes at a certain time, and then I'm going to leave at a certain time, and I'm going to have to circle around my house on the bicycle until I use up that time. I mean, does that sort of recede when you're on these book tours then? Well, I have to have some semblance of normalcy, so I just get up two hours before the car comes, and usually the car comes, you're taking the first flight in the morning, so the car's coming at six to take you to the airport, so I get up at four, just so I can work for a couple hours. And then, uh, as long as I can do that, I'm okay. Um, and, and the other little compulsive thing is that I wrote about in the book is when I, when I can't smoke often, I'm on a plane, I have to touch the head of the person seated in front of me. <laughs> and, and I just went to Bangkok, and there are two things. <laughs> it's a long flight. <laughs> oh, yeah, the person in front of me was so glad when, we got, when that plane stopped. You know? He had a bald spot. I touched his head so many times. But we got to Bangkok, and it's written everywhere, right? Two things. Don't point your feet toward Buddha and don't touch anyone's head. Like it's written down that you can't, and most people would never, they don't need to be told that. They don't, they're not gonna touch anybody's head. But told specifically that I couldn't do it, I had to keep my hands in my pockets the entire time I was there because it was forbidden, because you were told not to do it. And I was thinking, under what circumstances? Like could I, could I, I just, I, I just, it was painful. Boot is easy enough to avoid, you just don't go into the temple, you know? And the people are kneeling down, it's so easy to touch someone's head when they're kneeling down, you know? You just say, can I get by? And you just touch the top of their head like that. David Sedaris will be, uh, look for him, touching heads around the Bay Area. Thank you, Sedge. This is Sedge Thompson, thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day for more information wcl.org